Amen. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We magnify your holy name. We exalt you, Lord Jesus, for you are our Lord. You are our Savior. You are our soon-coming King. We bless you, Father, and we thank you that the presence of the Holy Ghost and the teaching of your word changes our lives, that we become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. We bless you, Father. Have your way in this place. Have your way in our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to start this morning in Matthew chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Then was Jesus led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Jesus makes a comparison to the Word of God, a comparison between the Word of God and natural food. He's saying just like bread is necessary as natural food for the body, to, to exist he said in the same way the word of God is food for our spirits now Jesus is identifying the importance of the word in his life and it should be the same in ours man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God there's one and only one thing that's been created to fit your spirit to develop your spirit and that is the Word of God. Now, if you look at the church world, I guess we would say generally that every Christian recognizes the importance of the Word of God or recognizes that it's supposed to be important to each one of us. But how many people are really actively developing themselves, developing their spirits through the use of God's Word? We have knowledge from the creation account in Genesis of how God ten times spoke and his words came to pass. For example, he looked into the darkness and said light. King James re records it as let there be light, but it's really just the one word light. He looked in the darkness and said light and light was. We understand, therefore, from these ten times identified in the book of Genesis concerning the creation account, we understand, therefore, that God's word carried his power, that God's word power was released by the speaking of God's word. Now, Adam didn't know that. He was made on the sixth day, and the seventh day God rested. And so when God created Adam and Eve, and put them in the Garden of Eden. The Bible says that he walked with them in the cool of the day. It's identifying that there was fellowship between God and Adam and Eve. And I would imagine that since God, the way God creates things, he always creates things to grow. So we would have to recognize that Adam, which had tremendous intellectual 
power available to him because there was the absence of sin and up until the entrance of sin that Adam had a, a mind or an intellect that's greater than anything that we have comparison to. I wonder what those days, especially the first days of life on the earth were like, were, uh, were like for Adam. The questions that he must have had as God showed him around the creation. Remember, the Bible says that God, at the point in time when it was um, appropriate for Adam to be made or created, God said, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness and let him have dominion over the work of our hands. So I have to assume that there was a lot of talk between God and Adam identifying Adam's role, identifying the authority that he had in the earth and how that authority should be used or manifested. I read an article some years back where the, the author claimed his belief that Adam and Eve must have walked on the earth before the entrance of sin for 33 and a half years. Now, the reason that he claimed this, and it's just speculation, there's no way for anybody to know. But his reasoning behind it was that everything that Jesus did, everything about Jesus' life was an example to us of how life is to be lived and he identified that Jesus being crucified at about 33 and a half years must have stood as a fulfillment of something regarding God's plan and his promise now like I said there's no way to, to identify or know one way or the other but it's interesting to think about Adam and Eve living on this earth in the presence of God without the presence of sin for 33 and a half years. I wonder what those early days were like for Adam and Eve. We know from the account given to us in Genesis that exercise of authority is about speaking God's word. That's one of God's eternal laws that man has the say-so over what will be in his life here on this earth, on this planet. We find different places throughout the history of the Old Testament where God identifies specifically that the exercise of authority is through the spoken word. Now here's Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 who has just been baptized by John in the Jordan River and the Holy Ghost descended upon him and remained thereon. And not only John saw it, but all the people that were there saw it. And that was the sign that God had given John the Baptist of who the Messiah would be. Now, if Jesus lived an example, lived a life that was to be an example for us, there's one example or one incident 
that takes place at the beginning of his earthly ministry that I believe is either misunderstood or failed to recognize the significance. In John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were sent there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus said unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and said unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in, the, in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Now folks, the fact that, uh, that Mary is involved and involves Jesus with the provisions of the wine, of the provisions of the wine at the marriage feast indicates that she had some position, meaning there was some this is probably some distant family member that's getting married. Now Jesus has not done any miracles. This is the first miracle. This is the beginning of miracles. So Mary would have no reason to think that Jesus has miracle working power. There would be no reason whatsoever for her to conclude at this point in time in his life that all of a sudden he has power that he didn't have before. She's been with him growing up. He's about 30 years of age when he enters into his ministry. So he's full grown. He's considered a man in every respect according to Jewish law. But up until the time that he's age 30, he didn't perform any miracles, at least any that would, would benefit others. But Mary, seeing the lack of provision at the wedding, which would be very shameful for the family, it would bring a, a black mark against the family if they were to run out of wine early on as they did. When Jesus, it seems that he rebuffs her. It seems that he's resistant to her trying to direct what he's supposed to do. But even after that, she says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do Whatever he says to you, do it. What does that tell us about her experience with him in his earthly life? There would be no reason whatsoever for her to tell the servants to obey his words if she had not seen his words fix problems before. 
there would be no reason for her to focus on the words of Jesus if she did not believe or have experience that his word fixes problems or specifically overcomes the lack of provision. Of all the things that she could have said, the fact that she says, whatever he says to you, do it, indicates that even prior to the point in time when he's baptized by John in the Jordan River, prior to the point in time when the anointing of God is upon him to preach the gospel to the poor and recovering of sight to the blind, to heal the brokenhearted, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Before that ever took place, before that anointing, that power of God ever came upon him, his mother, through the experience of growing up, him growing up, Jesus growing up in her house, she knows his words are the answer. She knows his words are the answer for whatever they've experienced. Whatever things have taken place, whatever lack there has been in their lives, she recognizes that Jesus' words are the answer. When Jesus says to the devil, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, Jesus is identifying that the word is first placed in his life. We know very little about Jesus' life, early life, before he entered into his ministry. But we do know that when he was 12 years old, he was left behind when the caravan, including his parents, left town for the, left Jerusalem at the end of the feast. And when they turned around to go back and get him, they found him in the temple talking to the priests, probably the high priest included. He was answering their questions in a way that was beyond any wisdom that they had. And he was posing questions to them that they could not answer. So we see again the importance of the word of God in his early life. Jesus entered his ministry as a man that has kept the law of Moses in every respect. He enters into his earthly ministry with a reliance and a dependence on God's word that is absolute. He knows that the word of God is the key to spiritual development. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. This spiritual development is spoken of by the Apostle Paul many, many, many times throughout the New Testament. And he identifies the conflict between spiritual things and natural things in a way that nobody else in, that writes in the New Testament does. Let me show you some examples of this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, 
He says, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He contrasts the inward man versus the outward man. And folks, that is the the summation and the key to spiritual development. To develop your spirit, to develop spiritual strength, is to let the inward man, Peter calls him the hidden man of the heart, He's hidden to the five physical senses. But to let that inward man dominate every aspect of your life. To strengthen that spiritual man through not only the reading of God's word, but more importantly, the meditation or meditating in God's word. You remember in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, when Joshua comes on the scene to take, place, take Moses' place as the leader of the children of Israel, God gives him the key to success. He said, this book of the law, which is all the word of God they had. So let's read it that way. This word of God shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein. The word meditate literally means to mutter, M-U-T-T-E-R, or to speak under your breath. This book of the law, this word of God shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. In other words, this meditation in God's word, this speaking God's word, nourishes and fits and feeds your spirit so that the inward man can dominate, can have the tools to dominate the outward man. So he said to meditate in the word of God day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. And then thou shalt have good success. The Bible doesn't even say God will prosper you. It says the acting on God's word will bring prosperity into your life. And will bring good success to everything you put your hand to. So when Paul is speaking to the Corinthians... In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he's talking about allowing the outward man to be dominated by the inward man. Allow the flesh, the body of this flesh, to be dominated and controlled by the inward man, the spirit of man, the real you. Now look with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He uses a different comparison or different terminology 1 Corinthians chapter 2, let me start in verse 6. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, it would not, they would not have crucified the Lord, the Lord of glory. Get what he's saying here, folks. He's saying the life, the eternal life that has been delivered to us, that we've been transformed, changed by 
to become a new creature in Christ Jesus, a new species of being. If the devil knew the power and the glory of this eternal life that we have received, he never would have crucified Jesus. Now, may I suggest to you that that implies that there's a power, there's a sufficiency, there's an active work of salvation and redemption that the church is not taking advantage of. How many Christians could we look at and examine their lives and say, well, if, God, if the devil had known that these people would receive this in salvation, we never would have sent Jesus to the cross. The implication is that we should be living above what we would consider a natural life to such a degree that the devil would have left us alone from the beginning. Folks, if we're not living that kind of life, I suggest that we attain to do so. Paul talked about the glory of God that was seen on Moses' face when they were in the wilderness and Moses went up to the mountain to speak with God. When he came down the mountain, the Bible says that his face shone. He reflected the glory of God. Being in the presence of God for those 40 days up on top of the mountain, he had soaked up so much of the glory of God that the people couldn't stand to look on his face. His glory, his reflected reflection of God's glory upon his face brought them under conviction. Think about the witness that that is. They know where he's been. The children of Israel know where Moses has been. They've seen lightning and thunder and darkness of smoke on top of the mountain. And what they saw was so awe-inspiring that they said nobody could live through that. But Moses did live through that. And he comes down to the bottom of the mountain and they see the, the, the glory and the brightness of God in his face. Wouldn't it be something if that was the testimony of the church in the world today? So the Bible says, Paul is telling us by the Holy Ghost that this salvation is something that is certainly recognized by the devil and his crowd even if not recognized by the church. Verse 9, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man, 
but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things which are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, notice the contrast that he uses here, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who, who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So he's talking about the difference between the natural man and the spiritual. Spiritual men recognize things from the Holy Ghost. Natural men do not. Now since that's true concerning people, it's, it's true concerning individuals. In other words, there's a conflict. A consistent conflict between the natural part of man and the spiritual part of man. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7 when he's talking about how his body keeps him from doing the things that his spirit wants to do. Romans chapter 7 verse 22 says, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Your flesh doesn't delight in the law of God. Your flesh doesn't de delight in the things that your spirit leads you to do. It wants to operate contrary of God's word. Contrary to anything that the Bible talks about being spiritual. So we've seen the inward man versus the outward man example. We've seen spiritual men versus natural men used as an example as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, just turn over one page. Verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. So he's talking about the contrast between the spiritual man and the carnal man. Now this word carnal has its origin in words that mean body ruled. When it talks about the carnal man, it's talking about the man that's ruled by his body. The man that's ruled by his five physical senses. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able for you are yet carnal or body ruled. For wherein there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am Paul, of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers by whom you believe, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now, he identifies their carnality by their divisions. He identifies that they're carnal or body ruled because they're pick, picking favorite ministers. It's hard for us to accept this. But the historical records that we have from the early church concerning Paul and others, Peter as well, but Paul is identified as a man that has a hard time speaking. And he says here to the Corinthians, I know what you say about my preaching. 
Now, Paul, who was such a master in putting down the truth of redemption and the benefits of redemption in in these letters that we have preserved for us by the Holy Ghost, it's hard to imagine that Paul was not an eloquent speaker. But he wasn't. At least according to the things that he wrote and the historical records that we have, the historical documents we have from the early days of the church. I read Paul's letters and assume that he was the best preacher around. How could he not be the best preacher that there was? Or teacher at least. Because of the revelation he had of who we are in Christ and what belongs to us through salvation. But apparently that wasn't the case. Yet God used him in such a mighty way. Apollos was just about the opposite of Paul. Apollos was one that didn't know nearly as much as Paul did. But he was such an excellent speaker. That a lot of people picked him as their favorites. At least here in Corinth. So he's talking about the natural man versus the spirit of man. And then he speaks of the, the spiritual man versus the carnal man. Let me show you another example. In Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, it says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed. This I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Now, sometimes people, and apparently the translators thought it was talking about the Holy Spirit here because it capitalized the word spirit. But folks, flesh doesn't lust after the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit doesn't lust after the flesh. He's talking about your spirit versus your flesh. That's the conflict that we have in this Christian life. When our spirit, the man on the inside, seeks to operate the way that God created him to operate and to be the dominant force above and over the flesh. But your flesh doesn't want to give up rule. Your flesh doesn't want to give up its place of importance. Your flesh wants to live by your five physical senses. But Paul said, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of your flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other. So that you cannot do the things that you would. That sounds like what he said in Romans chapter 7. The things that his heart wanted to do were the things his flesh kept him from doing. And the things that his flesh demanded to do were things that his spirit rebelled against. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, and heresies. Envyings and murders, drunken revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another and envying one another. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Paul is going to use one other example here. And that is the man that's conformed to the world versus the man that is transformed by the word. Beginning in verse 1, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be ye not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. He's talking about two kinds of people. He's talking about those that are conformed to the world. In other words, those that think and speak according to the world's way of doing things and those that are transformed by the word of God. In other words, those that have developed their spirit by feeding on the word of God to where it makes an impact and a change in their behavior. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Folks, the Word of God has transforming power to it. And all we're instructed to do is to meditate in the Word of God. To say it to ourselves over and over and over again. To speak to ourselves. Our spirit man taking control of our tongue to speak God's Word to deposit that word on the inside of us, in the real us, the eternal part of us. Look with me over to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. You may remember in the first chapter, it talks about counting it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. It talks about asking for wisdom, but asking in faith. Nothing wavering and not being double-minded. Well, double-mindedness puts you in position to be affected by this truth in James chapter 3. Now, if we know, since we know, that man was created to have authority. And since we know that authority is exercised or released by the words of our mouths, then we have to recognize that the devil's number one attack against us is, our, is in the area of our tongue. That's what James is identifying here as the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. If the devil's going to control you, he's going to control you by your words. Otherwise, he has no control whatsoever. He has no basis to gain control over you or, in, uh, or any aspect of your life. Because you're the one that has authority on how your life is going to turn out. You're the one, through your words, dictates what you will or will not have. 
That's why in Romans chapter 10, it identifies for us the steps to salvation. It says we're to believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with our mouths that he is Lord. You come into eternal life one and only one way, and that is through the words of your mouth. You determine, you confess, you speak God's word to enter into his family. So James tells us how the devil operates and implies to us what to look out for. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. The word offend means to stumble. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Now notice what he says. First thing he says about this uh, operation of the tongue. And again, he's identifying authority even though he doesn't use the word. But he's identifying our authority here in the earth and in, in our own lives here on the earth. He says if you can control your tongue, you can control your whole body. He says if you can control your tongue, you can control every blessing, every good thing that God has provided for us through the work of Jesus for our bodies. Now, folks, if you can control your whole body by controlling your tongue, then that means you can control your life in the same way. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindles. He's just simply saying the biggest fire there is starts with one spark. The largest fire we can imagine, these wildfires that are burning in uh, California and it seem to do so every year or two, they all start with one spark. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and has been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. He's talking about the natural man can't control the tongue. The tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Now remember in Romans chapter 12 we just saw Paul encouraged us not to be conformed to the world but to be transformed by the word of God. And that transformation will lead us into experiencing God's perfect will for us and in our lives. Here he says that the devil's influence upon our tongue is venomous. When you go back and look at the different things that we examined earlier and the different things that Paul talked about he talked about the inward man versus the outward man the outward man is venomous 
the words that he speaks are set on fire by the course of hell. The spiritual man versus the natural man. The natural man is venomous. It's his tongue spews deadly poison and is set on fire by the course of hell. Walking in the spirit versus walking in the flesh. Walking in the flesh is walking according to venomous influence. Conformed to the world versus transformed by the word of God. To be conformed to the world is to allow your tongue to be influenced by the devil to spew venom and deadly poison. Now with that in mind, turn back with me to the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13 tells us of the story of the 12 spies that are sent into the land of Canaan, the promised land, after God has delivered them from the hand of Egypt with mighty power and signs and wonders. So Moses picks, according to the instruction of God, he picks one man to represent each of the 12 tribes of Israel and sends them into the land for the purpose of spying out the land, finding out how the people that live there live, whether they live in huts or cities with walls around them and so forth. Now, folks, it's interesting to note that there are several times beginning at the time when Moses talked to God in the burning bush where God tells him about the promised land. He tells him the people that live in this promised land. He identifies them by name. And then when Moses delivers the children of Israel through the parting of the Red Sea, he talks to him again. God speaks to him again about the people that live in the promised land. It seems like it's a surprise to the 12, or at least 10 of the 12, that go into the promised land. It's like they come back astonished because somebody already lives there. But God never withheld information from them. He never tried to deceive them in any way. He didn't withhold information from them, trying to get in their good graces or something like that. And so when they send the 12 spies into the land of Canaan, into the promised land, he simply sends them in to find out what the land produces and how the people live. Now, folks, they've come out of Egypt just two and a half years before. We estimate that it takes about two, two years, maybe two and a half years, from the time that Pharaoh's army is destroyed in the Red Sea. They camp at Mount Sinai. Moses spends the 40 days and nights up on top of the mountain among thunderings and lightnings and blackness of smoke and so forth. And then he comes down and delivers the Ten Commandments to them. So over the course of time, from their deliverance from Egypt to the edge of the Promised Land across the Jordan River from the, the, the land of promise, 
We estimate that to be two to two and a half years. Now, I point that out just because two to two and a half years should not be enough time for them to, to forget God's display of power against Egypt. Now, Egypt was the, the, the country with the pyramids and all the, the great buildings and edifices and so forth. And the way that they lived as the, the world's superpower at the time, the way that they lived didn't hinder God from exacting judgment on them in any way whatsoever, did it? I mean, was God only able to overthrow Egypt because of the way that they lived? Why should the way that these people live in the promised land have any impact whatsoever on whether or not God will deliver them here, deliver the land unto them? But they returned from searching. This is verse 25, Numbers 13, 25. And they returned from searching of the land after 40 days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. The preceding verses tell us that they brought back a cluster of grapes on a pole between two people because it was so large. And they brought back pomegranates and other select fruits to show the people that it was a land that flowed with milk and honey. And they told him and said, We come unto the land, came into the land whither thou sentest us. And surely it flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land. And the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. God has identified and mentioned those people, those different types of people, several times when Moses is leading them out of Egypt. This is not the first time the people have heard this. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses. And said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, we be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, the land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants and sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so were we in their sight. Chapter 14. And all the congregation lifted up their voice to God and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore has the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return to Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make us a, a, choose us a new pastor and get, let us start a new church. <laughs> Why are they blaming Moses? He's done nothing but good for them. 
He's about to save every one of them by interceding with God, not to destroy them. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto, him, unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we had passed through to search it is an exceeding good land. Notice verse 8. If the Lord delights in us. This word if is the word since. There's no question whether God delights in them. He's delivered them from the world's greatest superpower, Egypt. There's no question whatsoever whether God's on their side. Since the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel ye not against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. It's still not too late for them. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. Now folks, remember what we just read over in James chapter 3. The world thinks that you can only defeat an enemy if, if you appear to be stronger than them. But the word of God has transformed Caleb and Joshua at least if nobody else, to where they're recognizing that the physical strength of the size of the cities and the height of the walls inside the promised land has nothing to do with God being on their side and delivering the land to them. But the attitude of the congregation is influenced and is robbed of God's blessing because of the venomous words that the ten spies came back speaking. It says they brought up an evil report. God talks about this in terms of temptation. He says that because there were ten spies that were speaking against what he said that he would do. And against the land that he said belonged to his people. He called each one of those a tempter. He said they've tempted me these ten times. Doesn't mean 10 different instances, it means 10 different people. Now, what did they do? They brought up an evil report of the land, saying God's not big enough to bring us through. They're saying God's not big enough to give us the land, to defeat those people, the enemies of Israel, the inhabitants of the promised land. God's not big enough to do it. Folks, there's a lot of things left to do before Jesus comes back for us. There's a lot of things that the church has identified as doing in the place that the church holds in this world. And it looks to be too big a job even for God. But don't get sucked into that. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And the Bible says God's coming back for a glorious church.
a glorious church. Maybe it'll be a church where the glory of God will shine in our faces like they did Moses. I love the quotation that somebody said. I don't know who to credit it to. But somebody said, always to be a witness. If necessary, use words. That's what I'd like to see the last day church be. A church of power. Not just a church of words. A church that manifests the the healing power of God manifest the healing the miracle working power of God manifest the mercy and goodness of God not just eloquent speakers so the congregation lifts up their voice and they cry once again now they've crossed the line No matter what they do at this point will make a difference. They've chosen their position. And that is a position against God. This is where Moses then intercedes for the people. Skip down with me to verse 20. Numbers 14 verse 20. And the Lord said I have pardoned according to thy word. But as truly as I live all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. Because these, all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, and has followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereunto he went, and his seed shall possess it. Skip down to verse 27. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel which they murmur against me. Say unto them, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. Now notice that phrase, as truly as I live. Part of it the translators added to help us with our understanding of it. But it's identifying that God's life, his existence, is to be measured against what he said will take place. Now when we think about how God lives or the life of God, there are two outstanding characteristics of God's life. One is it's eternal, never-ending. And the other is that God is unchanging. He never changes. So his eternal and unchanging law is identified in two different ways in these verses. Right here in verse 28, I believe it is. As they have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto them. Remember where we started. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, here's God speaking first person to Moses to deliver 
the information to the children of Israel. And God says in himself, this is my eternal and unchanging law. As they have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto them. In other words, they've exercised authority. They've exercised their own authority. And nothing's going to change it at this point. My eternal and unchanging law, God says, is they have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto them. But did you see the other one? Let's back up a few verses. Verse 21. As truly as I live, here's God's eternal and unchanging promise. All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Now, folks, there's a lot of things that we could identify that and assign to that. But certainly not the least of any of those things. To define or identify the glory of God would be his truth, his word being shown to be truth. As truly as I live, I have two unchanging and eternal laws, God saying. As you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. There's the exercise of man's authority. And the other is, my word shall be shown to be true. Everything that describes God's glory, everything that describes his power, everything that describes his goodness is all revealed to us in his word. So God is saying as forcefully as he can, Swearing by himself since there's nothing greater to swear by. He said, my word will be shown to be true. My word shall be shown to be true. My word shall be shown to be true. Those ten spies came back speaking poison. You know, one of the things that amazes me about this story, where are the people calling on Moses? When the ten spies tell their story, bring up their evil report, full of poison, set on fire by the course of hell. When the people are there, and I'm sure there was a lot more emotion on display than what the Bible records for us. But when these ten spies come back with the evil report, and then Caleb, first of all, speaks up and stills the people and says, wait a minute, since God's with us, we don't have to worry about the people. It doesn't matter that they have walls around their cities. Nobody says, remember the Red Sea? It was impassable. But then all of a sudden he made a way for us to go over on dry land. Where's the congregation saying to Moses, Moses, what do you think we should do? This is the guy that lived upon the mountain among the thunderings and lightnings 
and the blackness of smoke and conditions that the children of Israel looking up and witnessing said nobody can live through that. But then Moses does live through that and comes down the mountain glowing like a, a glow stick to such a degree that the people asked him to put a bag over his head. King James says a veil, but it's basically a bag over his head. Why aren't the people asking for counsel? Why is it out of these millions of people that nobody steps up and says, Moses, you've led us out of Egypt. God's displayed his power in the, 12, the 10 plagues through your hands. He told you to send spies into the land. What do you think we should do? I would suggest to you that Moses would be a better source than any of these ten guys that spied out the land. You know, if you look through that list of people who are named as part of those ten spies, the ten outside of Caleb and Joshua, that is, there's no information given us on any of who those people are. Nobody knows their names. If the Bible hadn't given us a record, they would have lived and died without any, anything attached to their name and significance whatsoever. Why are the people trusting their own thoughts? Even more, why are they trusting people that have come back speaking against God? Folks, I would suggest to you that there was a supernatural work of deception that took hold of the congregation of Israel. The reason I point that out is because we're living in another of those days of supernatural deception. Everything about this world, world governments, governmental operations, Everything that's going on around us is supernaturally deceiving. The supernatural part is the number of people that are falling for it. Things that seem so, uh, so outrageous are being accepted in many cases without even question. Why did the congregation give up on what they were there to have? Well, the answer is easy. It's simple. And that is they allowed themselves to think like the world. They allowed their thinking to be conformed to the world's image. They allowed the miracle working power of God that was on display before their eyes day after day after day. Most Bible scholars agree that the ten, the 10 plagues took place in about a year or a year and a half period of time. 
How could they forget those things? And even if they forgot some of the others, the locusts and the frogs and the lice and so forth, how could they forget the Red Sea parting? That was not only right in front of their faces, but as they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground, they could even touch the water that was congealed and separated. How did they forget that? How did they let that go? How could they not stand on the other side of the Red Sea after having come across on dry land and see the greatest enemy force, military power on the face of the earth destroyed and they never even had to throw a rock? How did they forget those things? Folks, Paul said, lest us not forget. And through our forgetting, abandon the great, great blessings that are ours through Jesus. Let us not forget, Paul said, and pass up on our salvation. Talking about all the good things that God has provided. These days of great deception... These days of lies on every hand require of us as the people and the children of God that we not forget the great things he's done for us too. Put yourself in remembrance of what God has done for us in the past as conclusive evidence of what he will do for us as we go forward. Folks, the devil wants to frighten you so that he can have control of your tongue. He wants to bring fear to you to make you venomous. Because of God's eternal law, he will do unto us even as we have spoken. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that there's nothing too big for you. You said in your word, Father, that the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just. Even as Mary, the mother of Jesus, told the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. We look to your word. to bring it to pass in our lives. Your word says, Father, that every sickness and every disease is under the curse of the law. And your word says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of sickness. Being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon us as Gentiles. We rely on your word, Father. Your word says, Father, that the chastisement of our peace was upon Jesus. 
so we will pursue and live in the peace of God both now and forevermore thank you Father that you forgive our iniquities you heal our diseases and you renew our youth like the eagles you satisfy our mouth with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagles we thank you Father for choosing us to live in these last days though they may be perilous though they may be strength reducing days because we stand upon your word we grow stronger and stronger we love you Holy Father and we thank you that you never let us down we thank you that you see us through no matter what. In Jesus' precious name. And if you can agree with that, say amen. Amen. That's